Welcome to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Right now, I'm joined by Associate Professor Timothy Qu- Qu- I've already uh, I've forgotten how to say your name probably. Quana. Cuna. Cuna. It's the Q. Oh, not Q. Cuna uh, from uh, the University of or University of Auckland. Sorry, uh, from the Law Department there. Uh, new book out. Um, and we're going to discuss that book this morning. Good morning. How are you? Morena, Jamie. Sorry, I got lost in my own thoughts then um, with, you, with your last name. And then I got stuck with the Q part of your name and I just thought, oh, we're going to talk about the American elections and QAnon. God. <laughs> Please, let's not. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about QAnon. Uh, that's going to be part of what I'm talking to, to Olivia Jutel about on Friday, so we'll, we'll leave that for there. Uh, for then. Terenary, uh, well, your book. Um, tell us about your book. Sorry. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Uh, Tyranny of Greed, Tyranny of Greed. is uh, a popular book. It's, it's um, branching off from the academy, so I'm bringing a lot of research from religion, economics, politics, mm-hmm. economics to bear on, on asking, well, well, how did Trump rise to power? What's the real nature of the political regime he's established? And what can that regime teach us, right? How could it empower ordinary people to take a stand against corruption and modern-day tyranny? Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about how did Trump come to power, are we looking about how he got to the position where he was running and his backers, how they came through uh, and formulated uh a plan of um, what they're going to tackle, what they're going to talk about with, with immigration um, and the likes, or are we talking about um, how he resonated with the people? We're talking about those things, but I talk about something deeper first. I'm really interested in the evolution of American democracy, or the devolution really, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we we go about eliminating slavery, we go about um, giving the vote to to women, to Native Americans, to Chinese immigrants, and so on. And there's this like there's this general trend towards more democracy, more inclusion. Mm-hmm. So you can't be discriminated against officially under law. You yeah. can't be discriminated against on the basis of race, sex, uh, class. Uh, law, uh, but class gets left off. Yeah, R- socioeconomic status gets left off. And I see Trump as being the eventual culmination of that, of allowing wealth to translate into political power. Uh, and, and wealth has been um, a, a big part of political power in, in America for a very long time. I mean, you go back to the just before the Great uh, Depression, or even, even further than that. Um, but uh, I guess if we're talking about in, in the Trump era, or this era in the last 20, 30 years, um, you've got things in America called PACs, right? And PACs are uh, major funds um, that go towards uh, candidates and those packs I mean there's a lot of packs a lot of different types of packs but those packs are, uh, are largely funded by big companies big corporations that have their own political motives right absolutely I think that's the most important thing about political action committees is that they're not funded by the average American who's representative of the general population. Uh Just like campaign donations, donations to political action committees come from this tiny slice of the population. So actually, if you look at super PACs, which take unlimited donations even from corporate general treasury funds, it tends to be less than a hundredth uh, of a percent of the U.S. adult population that provides about 80% of the money. Mm -hmm. So you have this tiny, tiny, minuscule fraction of the population that's controlling the outside speech environment. And they're not doing it for nothing. Absolutely not. It's an investment. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess a couple of the big ones you can think of, George uh, Soros, uh, the Koch brothers, 
Um, so the, they're both on, on either side. Mm-hmm. Soros is, is a Democrat. Uh, the Koch brothers are, are definitely uh, Republicans. Um, so, I mean, does that leave people like Trump or, or past presidents like uh, Obama and Bush uh, besodden and, and to hold uh, of, uh, from from these people? So, say, if they've got their ideas of what they want the American government to do, and if I give you enough money, you have to do that. There are very compelling studies that conclude that U.S. political parties and law and policy in general are almost entirely uh, unaccountable Mm -hmm. to the average person, to the ordinary voter. And I think that's a direct consequence of this plutocracy, right? This government by and for the wealthy. And that's what Trump built on. So -hmm. there was a pre-existing level of corruption that was through the roof. And Trump improved on it for purposes of making more money through Mm -hmm. politics. So, I mean, it's corruption, but it's totally legal. Yeah, it's legalized corruption. Yeah, yeah. And how do we get to this point? Well, uh, a big factor here is actually the U.S. Supreme Court, which is quite different from uh, the New Zealand judiciary in the sense that we don't have parliamentary supremacy. So Mm -hmm. our Supreme Court in the United States can strike down uh, legislation uh, upholding its power of judicial review. And, And so once the Supreme Court has struck something down, Congress can't just go and reinstate it. There'd actually have to be probably a constitutional amendment to go over the Supreme Court's head. Mm -hmm. So starting in 1976, there's a line of cases that say uh, political spending and political donations are a form of protected speech under the First Amendment, also a form of uh, free association, and that efforts to limit that speech on the basis of equality for purposes of making citizens more equal or for purposes of making office holders and political parties care about ordinary Americans, those kinds of purposes are unconstitutional in the eyes of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, uh, yeah, that's like a 40-year journey of what I call um, neoliberal jurisprudence, like a way of interpreting the Constitution that concentrates wealth and produces an inequality regime. Because, I mean, there's different ways of interpreting the Constitution, right? And you've got traditionalists um, like the um, who um, the lady, I forget her name, is about to be yeah. um, put up there today, uh, probably sometime today. A traditionalist that um, tries to interpret it as the Founding Fathers would have. Uh, and then you've got others that, uh, and, uh, I, I guess, try to interpret it in a more modern sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of different theories of, uh, of the Constitution and different approaches to judicial review, but the, the, this one is really unique, that what the Supreme Court's doing today is giving us democracy as an unregulated market. Mm-hmm. So how much money you have, basically your ability and your willingness to pay, translate into how much political power you get and what kinds of laws and policies we have. And that's, that's, you could call that a capitalist democracy, you could call it a plutocracy, mm-hmm. uh, and under Trump I call it a kleptocracy because the wealthy are governing directly under yeah. Trump. Politicians aren't just working as middlemen anymore, they're actually working to directly enrich themselves. Well, how come the American public aren't seeing this? Because the whole point was draining the swamp. Like Ameri- that's what Trump ran on as well. You know, yeah. it's uh, drain the swamp, get rid of big financial backers, get rid of Wall Street and in, in, um, in Parliament, and um, you know, and, and things will be right for the American people. But the opposite has happened. Yeah, look, I think the best way to oppress the masses is to divide them first. Yeah, and Trump is such an expert at preying on people's fears and insecurities and anxieties and biases and drawing the hate and the divisiveness and these parallel universes ultimately Mm -hmm. right out of the American fabric. And he's 
just torn the country apart. And I think, you know, average Americans do agree, not just average Americans, the great majority of Americans of all kinds actually agree that money in politics is a problem, that corruption is a problem, but they've come to prioritize the stuff that, that Trump pushes. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. It's unbelievable some of the things he's done. Like, he's made Russia look okay to the American <laughs> public. And a lot of the people that back Trump are the same people that were screaming against the, the red wave in the in the 1990s uh, and were living through the, the 1960s. And, and um, uh, you know, where, where people, businesses and, and people were going to prison for, for um, having political thought. Um, yeah. that, that was from from rather left leading. I'm trying to McCarthy. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, McCarthyism yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, these people lived through that, a- and now they're seeing um, Russia as a friend, yeah. just because Trump uh, has come out and, um, and and said, you know, Putin's my friend. Yeah, look, I think there's an incredible irony here, right? Which is that our paranoia, our historical paranoia about Russia, comes of course from the Soviet Union, and it comes from communism. And hmm. And what Trump has done um, somewhat successfully, to, to my amazement, is to say that anyone in the center or even or on the left is now uh, a socialist and a communist and is trying to destroy America. Mm, mm. And, and I would think that that kind of rhetoric would totally fall on deaf ears. Uh, Trump is trying to destroy America. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's a research conclusion, whereas saying that everyone else is trying to destroy America is, is just protecting your power by preying on people's paranoia. And you talk about religion in this book as well. The evangelical right in America is a huge pool of votes, right? And, and it's something that every president has tried to attach themselves to. Yes, uh, but they're reliably in the Republicans' corner. Yeah. So Trump wins the evangelical vote. Um, it's about 83%, I think, um, above 80% of the quote-unquote religious vote in the United States. Trump wins that. He wins uh, the vote of people over 40 years old. He wins the vote of rural Americans. He wins the vote of 80 to 90% of registered Republicans and so on. But I think what's new is that he captures the vote for needed change. People who are fed up with the system, who mm-hmm. feel like life for them uh, in the present is worse than it used to be, and that life for them in the future is going to be worse than it is in the present. And he captures that vote by a margin of two-thirds and wow. up. And that ought to be the vote that sides with the party of working-class people, yeah. which the Democratic Party essentially ceased to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, this is part of the problem as well, right? The Democratic Party isn't the traditional Democratic Party of um, the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, yeah, there's very little FDR here. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So we're, so why aren't they trying to go back to their roots? Why aren't they changing things? Why are they... That's what I wish they would do. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why Bernie Sanders' campaign and Elizabeth Warren's campaign made a lot of people feel really hopeful, is that we mm. could address the glaring issue uh, in a way sort of the elephant in the room right like all right so we know black lives Ma- black lives matter has has Im- pointed out in such powerful terms that the civil rights movement isn't over right the gains yeah. for african americans are absolutely not complete and in some ways they're getting worse meet the me too movement pointed out something similar for women uh, but the elephant in the room, I think, has been this plutocracy that we had during slavery. Mm-hmm. That slavery was a government uh, by plantation owners for yeah, purposes yeah. of maxing their profits, maximizing. Um, during the Gilded Age, we had the the, the sort of um, 
you know, industrial plutocracy, mm. robber barons and so on. And then in the 80s and 90s, we got the neoliberal plutocracy of uh, big pharmaceuticals, oil companies, law firms, uh, international trade, this sort of, this, these sorts of things. That's been the elephant in the room, and the Democratic Party got in bed with that. Yeah. And Trump has called them out on it. It's just ironic, though, because he's the biggest plutocrat in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he can... Um but he's way better at pointing out their faults and um, having his own yeah. show, and I guess. Um, democracy emerging from religion. Is that a thing? Um, I mean, gosh, when you look at the first English Republic, you know, if you look at the execution of Charles I um, back in the 1640s, and you had Milton there on the side mm-hmm. of, the, of the Commonwealth uh, and the parliamentarians who were against the monarchy, there was a sense that it was tied up, sure, because to to be ruled by a monarch is to give up your human capacity for self-improvement, your human capacity to live in accordance with your own values. Milton saw it as a form of slavery. And so you didn't really have to exercise your own moral choice if you were just being bossed around all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that like that perfectionist strain or that deliberative democracy strain, that mode of democracy where we all have to be and become better people, care about each other, live in community, is deeply tied to religious ideals of being virtuous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the U.S. holds the Constitution so highly, right? I mean, we hear about it all the time, especially when we're talking about gun rights. Uh, this is what we're hearing in New Zealand. Anyway, um, so why are they so easily pushing against the 14th Amendment? I mean, there's a lot of, um, through through a lot of different amendments, they say different things about um, the elections, or free, free and open elections in the states. But this one says um, it bars states from needlessly imposing substantial burdens on the right to vote. But we're seeing that right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What really doesn't help is that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And there was part of the Voting Rights Act, which was called the pre-clearance requirement. So states that had a history of essentially race-driven obstacles at the polls, Uh the sorts of obstacles and rules that would disproportionately harm minorities, those states had to get permission from the federal government before enacting new uh, or reforms to their electoral laws. And the Supreme Court struck that down in 2013. And since then, there's just been a tide of voting rights violations, uh, voter suppression of the kinds of rules that are clearly designed to favor the Republican Party by suppressing the minority vote. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess that right for states to decide how things are run in their own state is also entrenched in the amendment, Absolutely. It's part of federalism. Yeah, and hence the fact that the court could strike it down. Um, And gerrymandering is a big one too, right? Yeah, gerrymandering is a big one. It doesn't need to affect the the presidential election. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, cramming like-minded people into little districts uh, doesn't doesn't help the overall political landscape at all. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's a science, really. You know, the distortion of democracy in the United States is is really down to a science at this point. I've been watching what they've been doing in Austin, Texas, which is like a, this liberal um, beacon within uh, you know a deeply um, Republican state of Texas. Yeah. Um, and they've just, you know, the way they've changed um, the, the different little, um, I can't remember what you call them, um, just the areas of where you vote. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. to me. And, and in New Zealand, we do it by the amount of people that live within that area, right? Every 
every um, seat in the country has a similar population base, and and the shape of those seats will change depending on where population goes within within that area. So we've seen that in Dunedin recently, where the two seats, Dunedin South and Dunedin North, cease to exist. There's now a Dunedin seat and a Taieri seat, uh, which stretches. Um, further south um, but that, that's not how it works in the states is it what determines a, a particular um, uh, area for voting what determines a particular well the electoral map is drawn up yeah um, by legislators yeah and uh, they will draw them up in highly partisan ways so when you get a how majority how do they get to do that uh, simple majority power within the lawmaking process you'd think there'd be a neutral independent voice for accountability yeah and, like we have the electoral uh, commission, right? And and now I would think that would be the role of a state supreme court, and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court when it had jurisdiction mm-hmm. to examine the issue. And it should have jurisdiction because we're talking about the right to vote, um, which yeah is guaranteed by state law, but it's also a deep theme. It's not on the face of the Constitution, but it's a deep theme in the entire sort of development of um, the amendments that occurred, certainly after the Civil War. So, I mean, honestly, what so much of what I see in the United States is proof that democracy requires political will. You can destroy democracy when you feel like it yeah. in the United States. It's not very well entrenched. And I think that's one of the things that Trump's regime and the buildup to Trump's regime is there to teach us, which is, you know, if, if we want to have a democracy, we have to entrench it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to monitor it. We have to give up on the idea that it's going to be fine because it's been fine before. Well, it hasn't been fine before. And now it's worse. It is much worse. Um, the revolution to come. What is that? Look, that's a big picture idea, okay, which is to say uh, big pieces of democracy have been completed by social movements. So uh, I mentioned before that trajectory towards inclusion and participation by everyone, regardless of race, sex, uh, and so on. Well, we haven't had a piece of that which protects people regardless of their wealth. Now, um, how would you do that, right? Well, I look at different types of government that we've considered oppressive historically. So Mm -hmm. a monarchy uh, was considered oppressive. One of the constitutional ways to prevent monarchy is to separate powers. So whoever's elected can't become like a monarch because they can't exercise the powers of the judiciary or the legislature, Mm -hmm. right? Another form of oppressive government, I think, has been theocracy, where power is tied to your religious belief or your role in a religious hierarchy. In the states, we have a separation of church and state. and it's not perfect, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if yeah. it wasn't there, you could yeah. see religious organizations exercising way more power than yeah. they do. Now, we don't have any kind of constitutional architecture like that for business. So there's no separation of business and state. Mm-hmm. I would see the revolution to come as being one that recognizes that the United States has been under a plutocracy since the slavery era. And that's because we have no constitutional structure to break that up. And that that's what Trump is here to teach us. Mm-hmm. When was the last time an amendment was drawn up? Ah, uh, the 27th. I'm not sure what the year was. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. And how easy is it to do that? Uh, no, it's probably one of the hardest constitutions in the world to amend. Um, but it's happened that, you know, that many times. Yeah. It's just, a que- again, it's a question of political will. And, uh, and again, that's, what I, that's why I'm hopeful about this moment of history, that things have gotten so bad with climate change. They've gotten so bad with political corruption. They've gotten so bad with economic inequality that I think the time has, has come to question whether the political process itself, the way we get everything that we're interested in, mm-hmm. whether that political process has any integrity left. And if it doesn't, 
And I think it's pretty clear at this point that its integrity has been destroyed. The question is, how would you entrench and guarantee that integrity? And that would be a revolutionary change that began with people's awareness of the issues mm-hmm. and ended with some constitutional text that would make a difference. So really, I mean, the first thing you need to amend is your media. Like, if you want to get, if you want to educate the people and get the right message out there, you need to do something about your media, right? The United States does. Yeah, because I mean, it's conflicting and confusing messages coming from all over the shop, which is once again tied into um, those media's own person, well, their their personal views and, and how they want America to go. You've got Murdoch, who's protecting obviously his wealth. Um, you, I think what the media is basically owned by eight different humans. Um, so how I many? How do you fix that? I mean, again, here's the funny thing, right? So corporate consolidation and manufacturing consent and all these sort of these big ideas for where we are now, the fracturing of the media into different political camps. Mm. Uh, that's a major problem that almost feels too big to change. And at, yet at the same time, everybody has the power inside themselves to pause and to employ some critical thinking. And so, I mean, I, I do think it's a matter of kind of recognizing that on the left and the right, people are being manipulated. Mm. And you have to stop and think, what is at the root of all this? And is there a common denominator in America today that people could unite behind? And to my mind, that would be decreasing or ending class government, yeah. and decreasing or ending this kind of flagrant corruption. And it, look, we can be a country like uh, like New Zealand, where people disagree about a lot of policy issues, but you can basically trust that there's a process for resolving it. Mm-hmm. And when that process is conducted fairly, that you should abide by the outcome, because that's part of the social contract, right? Yeah. I think in the United States, the social contract is almost dead. Wow. Well, wow. uh, all right. So your lecture is on tonight from five thirty to six thirty at the Hercules uh, DF Lecture Theatre, which is at the corner of Great King Street and Hanover Street. Um, so, what are we going to hear from you tonight? I'll give um, a presentation of the book, of course. So, mm-hmm. tyranny of greed, Trump, uh, corruption, and the revolution to come. I'll be talking about some of the main takeaways. And uh, I'll aim to make it a dialogue and bring the audience in. And, yeah, we'll examine those things. You know, how did Trump come to power? How does his political regime really work? And what can it teach us? Um, And I'll also, I'd love to address the question of what can it teach New Zealanders who are interested in democratic integrity as well? Because this system isn't perfectly well entrenched either. There's some real vulnerabilities here in New Zealand. And I hope the U.S. case could serve as a warning. All right. So, and the book's out now. You can buy it at all good bookstores, especially UBS across the road from us here at the university. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming in, uh, Timothy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the rest of your time here in Otiputi. Thanks, uh, Jamie. Cheers. Here's, uh... Thanks for listening to a Radio One ninety one FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.